Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, stocks are falling on this first day of March as Russia bears down on the capital of Ukraine. How to position your portfolio amid the geopolitical conflicts coming up. Then some zoom gloom. Stocks now 70% off the highs. An analyst defends his buy rating this hour. And then later, crypto continues to get more controversial. A debate on whether to be bullish or bearish on Bitcoin, John. Yeah, but we begin this morning with... Hey, volatility. The bounce we're seeing, though, in some growth stocks to some extent are Mike Santoli joins us now on the choppy market. Mike? Yeah, John, and certainly primed for a bounce in those hard hit areas. You had your more than 20 percent pullback in the Nasdaq 100. Uh, I think it was the average pullback in Nasdaq composite stocks reached more than 40 percent. So clearly a lot of damage done. Let's take a look at how it sets up in the broader context. Two-year chart of the NASDAQ 100 shows you that at the lows last week, you basically went back to the very beginning of 2021. Uh, remember that late January, early February of last year? That was really when you saw the peak exuberance over things like uh, cloud stocks, the growth stocks, ARC, and all the rest of it. So this bounce in context... You know, it tends not to look like all that much. As a matter of fact, you're still kind of looking at this downtrend line needs to be broken. Even a very short-term technical indicator like the 20-day average is above. It's around 351 right now. So there's plenty left to be done in terms of proving that this is more than a bounce. Take a look at the cloud stocks, kind of an exaggerated version of what we see in the NASDAQ 100. Uh, and there you see that deeper downturn. And that's what, you know, a bounce off the lows looks like right there. I would say in terms of evaluation adjustment, uh, some of the things that are going on, yields lower and real yields more negative because inflation expectations and inflation itself have not declined as yields have. That's one cover story for why you might get a little bit of re-rotation into the growth sector and away uh, from value and cyclicals. But a lot still left to be proved, folks. Mike, I was wondering uh, if you make anything of the way that Zoom reacted after hours and is this morning. I mean, it seems to me like uh, back in January, if you had had guidance like Zoom presented, it would have been down double digits. Now it's down more than 5% this morning. Uh, I think uh, lows of the session. So it, it kind of is falling now. But uh, it seemed perhaps notable to me that a stock like that wasn't falling more. Does that represent perhaps the idea, at least, that there might not be that much farther to fall for some of these stocks that have been so punished lately? I, I do think it is a hint in that direction, John. I mean, that Zoom, uh, you know, itself down something like 70 percent off its highs, clearly got 
somewhat washed out. And interestingly, too, if you just look at the fundamentals for Zoom, it's no longer one of these kind of, well, a ton has to go right for this to become a good business. It's a good business. It's like 30 times forward earnings. It's not crazy expensive anymore. However, we're talking about no growth in earnings this year. And so it's in a little bit of an in-between spot where the growth investors lose interest. Value folks say it's still too expensive. But that doesn't mean that it's really out of the realm of the way stocks normally are valued. So that's a difference from what we were looking at 12 months ago. Mike, appreciate it. A lot to get to in the coming days uh, as with the week rolls on. Uh, Mike Santoli, for more on how we might be restructuring our portfolios amid geopolitical tensions and how tech factors in, Plexo's Low Tony joins us as well. Morning, Low. Good to see you. Morning. Thanks for having me. It's been said that some of the action in legacy tech is one of the more constructive things going on right now, whether that's because of how it changes the Fed's calculus or just valuations, as Mike was just saying. I wonder, I mean, how much would you put that in the win column for the moment? I would. I, I think there's just so much that we have moving right now. You know, we have a humanitarian crisis, unfortunately, happening in Europe, and we still have the concerns the market had prior to this. Um, unfortunate event in Europe, which is all of these fears around slowdown, headwinds from inflationary pressure, how the Fed is going to react. I don't know that we have completely seen the data points that we need. And perhaps we'll see some of that from comments this week from Fed Chairman Powell. But we still have a lot to digest from the market. Ah, that's interesting. So in the, for the time being, then, you're, you're, you would argue you're net cautious? I would say there, there needs to be a little bit of caution exercise right now. In particular, I think what happened is, you know, obviously a lot of these these companies and I kind of call it as John has pointed out, you know, we need to kind of almost decouple these mega techs in particular, you know, the fangs. I think people started to just think about the drive towards growth, the search for yield and lumped all these companies together without really looking at the underlying fundamentals. And now that's increasingly become important as we see looming on the horizon an increase in the interest rates, which we know puts pressure on growth stocks, in particular technology stocks, because of the discounted cash flow method used to value them and those interest rates increasing driving a higher cost of capital. We're going to see multiple compression. Um, mm -hmm. I do believe that once we have a little bit more of an indication, we'll get some clarity. But look, the Fed is going to try to maintain their credibility. And, and we suspect that, you know, some investors haven't yet fully had that, you know, that come to that realization moment. Lo, what does more clarity look like? What are you looking for to determine whether or not you sort of this idea, again, of legacy tech being more constructive? Has anything fundamentally changed here? Yes, the macro environment has. But do you think that IBM and some of the other legacy names are innovating on the same level as some of the newer companies like Snowflake and others? Yeah, look, they're forced to innovate because of what's happening in the changes in behavior and the new technologies, the new threats that present new opportunities. So these legacy tech companies are forced to go after them. You know, some of these legacy tech companies do have the ability to kind of think about it from a build versus buy perspective. Mm. But look, I think there's just so many moving pieces right now and companies need to maintain steadfast on their North Star. Yeah. Um, but still factor in the geopolitical and as well as the macro drivers. But, Lo, for the long term, do you want to be invested in a company that is forced to innovate versus a company that's doing it on its own and looking ahead already? 
not for my portfolio, <laughs> right. not for my portfolio at all. You know, I look, we are mainly investors at the private stage. We like innovation. And look, the reality is these legacy tech companies, they had their moment. They had their time in the sun. And often they are not able to continue to compete, which requires rapid technical innovation. So, you know, from a, a personal portfolio perspective and, and my personal belief is that the biggest drivers are coming from the innovation companies, the companies that have their, and, and this is where the, the challenge lies, right? Like when you think about the companies that are really gonna drive innovation moving forward, right now they're getting punished because they're seeing that the rise in interest rates puts a compression on their multiples. So, you know, do we fundamentally believe that these smaller companies are ultimately gonna out-compete, out-innovate legacy tech? Uh, absolutely. It's just that right now, with so much uncertainty in the market, we know that that is what's putting pressure on them. Now, what does that mean? It does present a, you know, a buying opportunity. But I go back to some of these old adages, you know, don't try to catch a falling knife. I do believe caution needs to be exercised today until we are able to have more clarity. And then I think what we'll see is the ability to drill down and understand which of these companies are really going to be positioned to drive future growth, and there's going to be some amazing buying opportunities. Well, that's my big question right now in this market environment that I keep trying to poke around and, and ask people for their perspective in different ways. Fed aside, right, given the tough quarterly comps that we're coming up on uh, and given the demand headwinds from the uncertainty uh, in Europe that uh, former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew was just talking about last hour, should we even assume that good stocks deserve to trade at the multiples where they are right now? I mean, not just is it justifiable, but is it likely that they continue to trade there if the comps are tough and if they say, oh, well, we're seeing a bit of a slowdown in Europe. And so therefore, our growth rate is going to come down, you know, a, a percentage point or so. Do, do they stay here? Are you thinking about that? Absolutely, John. I mean, that, those are great insights. And we believe that when we see what's happening both in the geopolitical and the macros, you know, this could present additional headwinds. And there's just a lot to digest right now. So is it the case that maybe the stocks are still a little bit, um, you know, I don't want to say they're overvalued, but could we see additional multiple compression? I think the answer is, is yes in the near term. So what happens to private companies? What happens to IPOs in an environment where there are these types of questions being raised? Are you pushing as hard as you otherwise might for some of these companies that are even uh, on the cusp of, of being ready to join the public markets? Yeah, look, I think the biggest driver for the IPO market is, is always what's happening in the stock market. And so, you know, when you see multiples being compressed, when you see declines in stock market, the general indices, as well as the individual names, what ends up happening is, you know, the board, the investors, they start to rethink whether or not the right time is to enter the public markets today. Do I believe that some of the best names will continue to be able to go public? Absolutely. But I think the other names that are kind of on the edge, there's a lot of capital still available in the private markets. What we will likely see and kind of what's happening, the whispers behind the scenes is that some of the companies that maybe as recently as six months ago thought they were going to file are now turning back, raising additional capital in the private markets just to kind of wait things out to see where 
the market runs so that they can have additional clarity and see if we can get back to a more favorable window for IPOs. Hey, finally, Lo, you know, we're all waiting to see how much the Chinese are going to stick their neck out uh, to maintain global stability. Stability's long been their number one interest. And I wonder if you think it removes a lot of the regulatory risk that has crushed China tech. Do you think in the future, from here on out, they're going to try to do as little as possible to make that situation worse? And does that make some of those names interesting? Yeah, you know, China is is going to be one country to watch for sure. You know, I think just given their increasing prevalence and and really dominance in the global markets, it's going to be important. And and I do think, you know, could they go a little more insular? Um, Yes, of course, that's always possible. Um, But they're such a big, you know, producer. They're both important from both a demand and supply perspective. I do think there's going to be some interesting names to watch. But there's so much pressure right now. I mean, when you think about what's happening with the ability for a lot of these Chinese companies to get global exposure and the public markets, it's it's a lot tougher than it was. That's for sure. Uh, A lot lot of cross currents, Lo, uh, and such little visibility. But always good to start the hour with you. Thanks. Lo, Tony. Thank you. Meantime, tech companies with an employee presence in Ukraine are rushing to get people out of the country. Kate Rooney has more on those efforts. And, Kate, there is a significant presence of tech workers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's grown in recent years. Uh, Ukraine is a valuable and growing tech hub. For tech talent, the country has become well-known for its engineers and computer scientists. And companies have been drawn in by that and a tax-friendly environment. It's the fastest-growing country in Eastern Europe when it comes to that tech workforce. To give you a sense of this scale, like you mentioned, D, one in five Fortune 500 companies now use Ukrainian IT services. That's according to a recent industry report. And among the tech companies, you've got Microsoft, Google, Samsung, Oracle, Ring, that's a division of Amazon, and Snap. And right now, they're moving to get their employees out of the country or provide support. Uber is offering some employees Temporary relocation assistance, Lyft, meanwhile, is providing its team in Ukraine with financial support for emergency preparedness and time off. And Amazon just posting an update this morning. They say that they're expanding support to employees in Poland as well and giving additional time off. Also working with Ukrainian nationals to expedite immigration visas if someone has relocated. Others are paying months worth of salaries in advance. Startup Lemon.io sent employees two months worth of paychecks in advance and double the frequency of payouts to developers. Just Answer, that's another San Francisco-based online platform that connects people with experts for professional advice. That company has about a third of its workforce in Ukraine. And CEO Andy Kurtzig says they've been preparing for months. Brought in diesel generators in case the power goes down. Uh, before the war hit, we were expecting that that if war did hit, that Russia would try to take out power. We also expected Russia would try to take out uh, communication systems. So we got multiple ISPs, we bought satellite phones, and we've got multiple different methods of communication for our employees. And we started moving people from the east to the west, all those that wanted to move. Just Answer is supporting employees who are joining the military and are trying to organize relocation of women and children abroad. D.
Kate, it's a fascinating story. And it also works on the flip side, right? Their community of tech expertise is actually helping in that in those war efforts. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, the use of social media. But for things like cyber attacks, too, it's helpful to have that kind of knowledge inside the country. Absolutely. I spoke to the, the founder of something called Near Protocol yesterday. It's a crypto company. But uh, Ilya told me that his his network, his friends that are in Ukraine right now, are using their tech expertise, their software know-how to exactly what you mentioned, things like cybersecurity, mobilizing on social media. And they're staying in the country to fight, but it, not, it might not be the hand-to-hand combat that you right. think about. It's really the cyber warfare and software. In a digital age. Kate, Absolutely. thank you very much. Meanwhile, Zoom, Workday, HP Target, earnings, winners and losers. We still got those after the break, plus a watershed moment for crypto. More Tech Check in a moment. Stay with us. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Gut check on two earnings movers this morning, Workday and HPQ, both reporting a beat on the top and bottom lines. Guidance was good as well. Workday seeing some gains today while HP inks in the red after losing all of its morning gains. Workday is actually the second best performer on the NASDAQ this morning, although still down along with HPQ. Double digits for the year, John. Now let's talk another earnings mover. We mentioned it earlier. Zoom shares are lower this morning, down about 3%. It had been down more than 5 uh, as growth slows at the company. Zoom did beat on the top and bottom lines, but the pandemic stock is now down 77% since its 2020 high. Is this an attractive entry point, or has Zoom's 40 minutes of fame run out? Baird Senior Research Analyst Will Power joins us now, has an outperform rating on the stock, although he cut his price target, I believe, to 180 from 190 this morning. Will, welcome. Uh, 180, 190 would put it right about where it was at the start of this year. Um, And it seems to me the question is, how much can Zoom expand its enterprise presence as it rolls out these new services and how loyal will its existing customers be in adopting those services? Is, Is that how you see it? Yeah, well, John, good morning. Thanks for having me. Look, and with that question, it's been rough sledding for some time. There's been a lot for investors to digest. But look, I think the good news is, despite what we knew were tough comps, and, and that was manifested uh, in the guidance, our bet here 
is that estimates now have been sufficiently reset. And you can look towards, you know, greener pastures ahead, I, I suppose, uh, you know, so to speak. And I think really the bet, as you pointed out, is on the enterprise segment, the growing opportunity there, not only to gain greater penetration for the core meetings product, but to cross-sell products like Zoom phone and things like Zoom events and contact center over time. And so the, the big bet here longer term, John, is that this becomes much more of a platform play. And, and we do like the, the longer term setup from here. So if we take a, a handful of enterprise collaboration names, Microsoft Teams, uh, Cisco WebEx, which has been redesigned. Um, why don't we throw Atlassian in there, uh, for example, you, you could do uh, Salesforce and Slack as well. What does Zoom have to do differentiation-wise versus those to, to win enough? Is it exploiting that video advantage that made them a consumer favorite, but now sort of on the digital and retail side is a headwind for them? Well, those are great questions, and there's a whole slew of big competitors there, uh, not the least of which is probably Microsoft and its Teams platform. Look, we think you know, as you look at the innovation that Zoom has demonstrated, the R&D engine um, you know, that it has, uh, that it can continue to take share from many of the legacy incumbent providers. And so I think you're in an environment where you know, Teams and Zoom can continue to take share from WebEx and some of the other players. And where they've really differentiated themselves is, as you pointed out, building on that meetings customer base, that global brand that they've established to build a, a broader platform and really be a dominant provider within this cloud communication suite of products. And, and that's really the sweet spot. They're not trying to be all things to everybody, but really capitalizing on the meeting space to move into phone, contact center, things that are tangential. We think they do have sustainable advantages. Hey, well, um, looking at cash levels, what, $5.4 billion? I mean, I wonder how much of that goes into R&D. They, they've shown they're not averse to M&A, but the buyback says they're also interested in capital return. How would you spend it? Well, that's a great question. Look, I mean, they announced a billion-dollar buyback, which, of course, we, I'm sure the street view positively. This is a company that just generated almost a billion and a half dollars of free cash flow. So, you know, this is a company that's actually quite profitable, and, and whereas – you know, a year and a half ago, it's trading at 20 times revenue. It's now trading at 20 times free cash flow. Um, and so they do have opportunities to invest. They just generated 40% operating margins. They don't intend to, to sustain that level because of some of the R&D efforts underway. So I think, look, at the end of the day, Carl, I think it's going to be a combination of investing organically, looking at tuck-in acquisitions. I'm not expecting anything larger, though possible. And look, at some point, you know, they could upsize the buyback, you know, if it makes sense, given the, mm -hmm. the cash generative um, capability of the firm. Yeah, in some cases, well, they don't have a choice but to grow organically, like with their call center. Um, you said a moment ago that the bet is that Zoom becomes a platform and not just a feature. What is it now and how big is the threat of Microsoft or how big is that obstacle in becoming what Zoom calls a unified communications platform? Well, I mean, this is the opportunity and the challenge in front of them, right, is capitalizing on that meeting space. And, and look, as I look at some of the early indications, particularly around Zoom phone, they are capitalizing on that. They had a record quarter on Zoom phone, adding 550,000 new seats this last quarter alone. I mean, that's a business we think that's growing, you know, triple digits uh, year over year. Still a single digit percent of revenue. So it'll take some time to become more meaningful to the top and bottom line. But I think a clear cross-sell opportunity as you look at their you know, growing global 2000 uh, customer base and then extending beyond that, right, to the Zoom events, 
uh, to Zoom rooms, right? And, and, and enabling and enhancing the conference room opportunity as folks return to the office. Hmm. So there are multiple things that they're already starting to execute on, some that are further along uh, than others. But we do think there's an opportunity there. Look, and they are going against Microsoft Teams, right? I mean, that's the 800-pound gorilla, um, you know, in the market. Um, but again, Zoom, as you think about user friendliness, so, price points, um, et cetera, I think still stacks up, still stacks up well. So, Will, one more for you then. Is Zoom better off pursuing product-led growth and uh, less uh, SG&A spend, or are they better off investing to beef up that go-to-market? So should they be uh, more competing with Atlassian on the lower cost and letting the product lead, or do they need to become more of a traditional enterprise player uh, with more uh, of a sales force and that kind of infrastructure to go up against Microsoft? Well, I, I mean, John, it may end up being you know some of both, but I think without question, they want to beef up, go to market, become more of the enterprise play. I think they are going to go head-to-head more um, with Microsoft Teams. That's really who they run into most often. But in a lot of cases, it's this cost, you know, it's just this kind of front of me element where organizations will use Microsoft Teams for some of its elements, but come back and use Zoom for the meetings or, or voice part. So they, they can, in fact, coexist. But enhancing and bolstering the go-to-market, particularly internationally. That's a huge growth opportunity for them, the EMEA and asia Pack. Growing that sales funnel and capability, I think, is probably where the focus is on that front, on top of R&D. All right. Will Power, thanks for the insight. Thanks for having me. Meantime, we got Bitcoin uh, back to 45K this morning. That's about a three-week high as uh, both sides in the Russia-Ukraine crisis turn to crypto. The exchanges remain under some pressure. We'll talk about that with investor Sam Lesson in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... (laughs) 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston resetting here near the bottom of the hour. Indexes are firmly in the red, although just off a of session lows. Uh, you got the NASDAQ lower this morning, although it's down the least of the major averages. AMD, Micron, some of the big laggards. Netflix, just one of the many media companies taking action amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're going to get more on that in a moment after a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel. 
Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. U.S. crude prices now nearly $104 a barrel as sanctions against Russia mount. That's despite reports of an international agreement to release 60 million barrels of oil from strategic reserves. Japan's industry minister says that half of the oil release will come from the U.S. Maersk and MSC, the two largest shipping lines in the world, have halted container shipping to and from Russia. That's in response to the invasion of Ukraine. Maersk says that the transportation of food, medical and humanitarian supplies will not be affected. A cargo ship carrying thousands of luxury vehicles that caught fire two weeks ago has sunk. The vehicles included Porsches, Bentleys and Lamborghinis. Total value of the cargo is estimated at up to $500 million. Volkswagen says that the loss will be covered by insurance. And shares of Target now up about 12% in this down market. Q4 revenues were slightly below estimates, but earnings were well above forecast. Guidance for this year is also strong. But even with today's big gains, Target shares are still more than 15% below their 52-week high. You're now up to date. Deirdre, I'll send it back to you. Raul, thanks very much. The U.S. and its allies are punishing Russia with the most extreme set of sanctions ever put on a G20 country. The ruble has collapsed. Russian equities are in free fall where they're traded at all. But even so, will these sanctions work? And that is Steve Leesman's story. He joins us with more. Steve. Deirdre, thanks. Some breaking news on the sanction front. The Bank for International Settlements, it is the so-called Central Bank of Central Banks, just sent CNBC a statement saying, quote, the BIS will not be an avenue for Russian sanctions to be circumvented. The BIS was a potential hole in the Allied sanctions that froze $630 billion in Russia's foreign exchange reserves. It reportedly holds some 6.4% of those reserves, and it's not strictly subject to Swiss law, even though it is in Switzerland. It previously said to us it would not comment on the issue. There are still some significant holes, though. Russia continues to earn dollars or foreign currency through energy sales. The Russian Central Bank could have some access to those foreign reserves, perhaps through China. And ordinary Russians buying Russian goods are going to feel little impact since the ruble is the ruble. If you buy a, a loaf of bread for a certain amount of rubles, there's no change. The sweeping sanctions, though, uh, imposed on Russia are hitting almost every stratum of society. The ruble has devalued. Air Force canceled all its flights in Europe and MasterCard and Visa announced this morning they're blocking several Russian institutions from their network. Imported goods and trappings of Western life that many Russians have become accustomed to, they're going to grow far more expensive and even become unavailable. But Russians, well, they've endured ruble devaluations worse than what's happened so far. Take a look at this. The ruble devalued by 32% in the great financial crisis, never recovered, fell by 45% against the dollar with sanctions after it took over Crimea. It declined by 18% as a result of the pandemic and low oil prices now. With some strengthening of the ruble this morning, it's off 26% since the beginning of the Ukraine invasion. So not the worst. With a brutal Putin regime that suppresses opposition and jails critics, sanctions that make Russian people suffer economically will only go so far in changing the course of this war. John? Steve, thanks. And now from money to content, restrictions for Russia and its state media machine ratcheting up this week as companies across the media space take action. Julia Borston has the latest. Julia? Well, John, movie studios are the latest to take action in response to Russia's attack on Ukraine. Disney was the first studio to say it's pausing its releases at the Russian box office, including of Pixar's upcoming Turning Red that was scheduled for a March 10th release. Warner Brothers followed by pulling the Batman and then Sony followed by saying it would not release Morbius, which is starting starring Jared Leto and had been set 
for release in Russia in late March. Now, the question is what impact this could have on a movie industry that has already suffered major losses during the pandemic. Analyst Barton Crockett noting that Spider-Man No Way Home brought in 2.4 percent of its global box office in Russia. Crockett saying, quote, the studios can afford to skip the market. Also noting that Disney Plus has not launched in Russia, saying investors, I am confident, would be fine if Disney and other studios skipped the market. Now, this all comes after Netflix said yesterday that it would not comply with a Russian law requiring it to stream 20 Russian-controlled TV stations, stations which could be used to spread propaganda to to Netflix's subscribers in the country. Now, there's no word yet on what action Russia could take in response. And then Roku last night announced it is removing Russia's state-controlled TV network RT from its channel stores in Europe. Now, Ukraine's Ministry of Culture and Information policy has called on international TV providers to turn off Russian news channels. Roku has not removed its channel, the RT channels from its U.S. platforms and DirecTV and Dish, which carry RT America, are are being pressed on this as well. Dish saying that they are closely monitoring the situation, but they have not taken any action yet and no word back yet from DirecTV about whether they plan to remove RT America from their platform. Guys? Julia, it's interesting, uh, the moves they're making, all the the studios, uh, the platforms, but I wonder if it invites criticism of those companies later on in other areas of the world where maybe there isn't military aggression, but legitimate complaints about government actions, and they'll say, well, you pulled out of Russia, why, why aren't you doing so in X country? Look, I'm sure all of this is going to open up a lot of these companies to, to issues and complaints, but you just have to wonder here whether or not it's worth it. Russia is not a meaningful piece of the box office. If you look at these movie studios, whatever blowback they might get from a releasing a movie in two weeks in Russia is probably not worth it at this point. So I would say the movie studio is under a lot of pressure right now, but in the grand scheme of things, that Russian box office is relatively small. It will be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, China is a country which tightly controls the movies that are released there. So that is an issue that has been hard in terms of the U.S. studios being able to get access to what is now a major box office force, though, that we'll see if there's ever any situation like this which follows. I mean, this is relatively unprecedented Mm -hmm. in terms of studios deciding to all hold back their releases. Right. Uh, Thanks for bringing us that, Julia. We mentioned this story yesterday, but we do have an update. Uber holds a significant stake in Russian Internet company Yandex. Now the company Uber says that it is trying to, quote, accelerate the sale of its holdings in that company, which also operates a ride hailing service in Russia. That's where the JV with Uber is. As of the end of 2021, they owned a 29 percent stake in the venture that was valued at around eight hundred million dollars. Russia's prime minister, though, promising to temporarily ban foreigners from selling Russian assets, although it's unclear how that would work, especially for a company that trades publicly on the Nasdaq, John. The uh, meantime, today's sell-off picking up a bit of steam in the last few minutes. The Dow is down, uh, you know, more than 550 points right now. Uh, as the volatility continues, the Nasdaq uh, is lower by about just over 1%. That, that amount on the Dow amounts to about one and two-thirds. S&P holding in at about one and a quarter down. Tech Check is back in two.
Bitcoin is trading higher again after yesterday's massive rally. The situation in Ukraine setting up a huge debate over cryptocurrencies. World leaders have called on crypto exchanges to help ensure that Russian individuals and banks are not using virtual currencies to evade sanctions. Ukraine has gone further, calling for the suspension of all Russian accounts. Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange, responded, saying unilaterally banning users would, quote, fly in the face of the reason why crypto exists. With us now for more on how the case for crypto is being tested, Slow Ventures partner Sam Lesson, who has invested in a number of companies in this space. Uh, Sam, it's great to have you with us. We are essentially seeing a massive geopolitical test for Bitcoin. One, is it passing? And two, what does it mean for the long-term role of crypto? Yeah, well, look, I think the interesting thing about crypto is you see three different stories all occurring in the same area and same asset class. One is the traditional Bitcoin store of value asset case, which a lot of people talk about people in times of uncertainty looking to crypto and looking to Bitcoin in particular as a place to hold wealth. The second is effectively the tech story or the smart contracting story, which is the future of technology. The third is just straight up speculation, right? And the reality is what we're seeing here is people are going back to, in some ways, the first question of cryptocurrency, uh, which is when you think about Bitcoin as a store of value uh, that doesn't exist with any one government, um, as you think about it as digital cash in the future of that, how do we think about that? Um, you know, Historically, countries have always had currency controls and thought about this stuff, but in the end of the day, you could never keep average citizens from trading cash uh, between each other. How do we think about that in a fully digital world as you see certain countries um, and, and areas very rightfully trying to create a higher currency controls and control digital, uh, digital exchange and other narratives pushing back on that from a decentralized perspective? There's no yeah, right talk- answer. But, yeah. Sorry, Sam, to cut you off. Um, no, there's, there's no. Bit- yeah, oh, after you. <laughs> Okay, I wanted you to sort of go into that role of crypto exchanges, because what this is showing us is that Bitcoin isn't exactly anonymous, but it is very transparent. And there are calls um, for Binance and some of the other platforms to freeze all Russian crypto accounts. But should crypto exchanges have to do more than traditional institutions like banks and trading platforms? I'm not sure they should have to do more, but they certainly need to comply with the laws of the countries in which they're domiciled and and who, who they operate with. You know, the reality is with a thing like Bitcoin is, you know, should individuals be able to trade Bitcoins between each other without an exchange? You know, local Bitcoin style, should I be able to make those exchanges? You know, my view is that the right to free exchange is pretty fundamental to humanity. It's something we haven't historically seen challenged because it was impossible, but in the digital world becomes possible. I think it's a very important thing, just like free speech. But, you know, should Coinbase have to follow the laws of the U.S.? Yeah, right? Like, I don't think there's anything That's you know, specific to it. That's not the question, though, Sam. It's, it's should they suspend all Russian accounts, right? I think that a lot of the platforms, all of them have said that they're going to, all the credible ones have said that they're going to comply with, you know, people on the sanctions list. But the issue of sort of taking off an entire population, that's not something a bank would do. No, I, I agree. And I, I again, I think this is like part of the maturation of the crypto space and some of these financial institutions that are based around cryptos. How do you navigate this? The regulatory thing, you're right. It's easy, right? The answer is you comply. Um, you know, when you get into some of the more pull up issues that are PR driven or policy driven or politics driven, you know, that's for each of them to navigate on their own. You know, some will do it successfully and will will do well from that. Others will probably mess it up um, and will have serious issues of trust um, or reputation as a result. But it's not a, not an easy thing for them to navigate. That's for sure. Isn't this, Sam, more than just an individual reputational issue? I mean, this, there's the potential for this to be crypto's Cambridge Analytica moment. I mean, if crypto becomes a means for Russia 
dodging the impact of sanctions. And the world writ large, particularly the Western world, blames it for that. Uh, won't that have an impact on policy? Well, I think there's, you've got to separate out a few of these stories. One is, you know, at the order of magnitude we're talking about as a country, crypto is nowhere near enough big enough for Russia to be using it to dodge sanctions as a country. You know, it is still only about $2 trillion. You know, when you're talking about the type of movements that would, that, that's like a whole other level we're talking about. And crypto is not even close to capable of doing that. When you're talking about individuals who want access to free exchange digitally, um, you know, look, I think this is a really big question of our time, which is we never before thought about governments and currency controls with such complete control as they now have in the case of the digital economy, the digital world. Would we want China having the one option where they can make unilateral decisions because of kind of a financial system with a single point of failure where they can make those calls? Probably not as Americans. Um, you know, would we want on the future, on the other side, a world of absolutely no controls? That would be both dangerous and take away a lot of our, our, uh, our basically political tools and our tools in this time. So the answer has to be somewhere in the middle. I do think it'll be challenging for individual exchanges, large institutions that have to navigate this. But if you go to the base level of do we believe in free speech and do we at a very fundamental level believe in individuals having access to free exchange? I mean, I know where I sit on that issue. Um, and I think the reality is be very scary for the world to come out of this and make the decisions that to indict crypto overall or the idea of free digital exchange um, because of this obviously very challenging political situation. Although, Sam, it sounds like you agree somewhat that we are testing people's, the globe's uh, appetite and tolerance for just pure decentralization. I mean, the kinds of things that Satoshi had in mind. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and the reality is there's nothing new about this. It might be a test that's been contemplated in theory for aid. It's been contemplated in theory since the beginning, right? This is now a practical example that we're going to have to work our way through. And again, I do think you have to understand that crypto and Bitcoin, it's an ecosystem, right? And there are lots of points of leverage on it and lots of points of transparency. So I think grouping it all as one thing is kind of a mistake. Um, instead, you kind of have to look at the big institutions all the way down to how do individuals interact and trade and exchange with each other. Um, it is all under the heading of Bitcoin or, you know, decentralized digital currency, but nothing is perfectly decentralized. You know, if you took out a bunch of the top exchanges, you better believe you'd have an impact on the ecosystem, although you wouldn't be shutting down Bitcoin. And I think that's kind of the interesting part. Sam, thanks for your insights. We'll talk to you again soon. Sam Lesson. And if you're hungry Thanks, for Kyle. more crypto content, stay up to date with our digital show, Crypto World. Check that out at CNBC.com. And that's not all. We're also doing a Tech Check Plus live stream today, 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 ET, discussing crypto's role during ge geopolitical unrest. Tune in on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Meanwhile, do not sleep on today's market action. The weakness is accelerating. The Dow is now down more than 650 points. This tech sector is down 1.4%. We're going to have more after this break. Welcome back. The Nasdaq is down one and a third percent right now. The S&P about one and a half. The Dow about two percent. That one and a third percent on the Nasdaq adds to the four percent drop we saw in February. But a few select parts of tech have managed to escape the sell-off. 
Dom Chu is wrapping that up for us. Dom. At least in the month of February. And we know that in the second, mo- the second half of the month is when we started to really feel the tensions in Ukraine and Russia really come to a head, kind of driving down those prices. But to your point, the Nasdaq is down about one and a third percent. Meanwhile, the Dow, as you can see here, is down 670 points. That's two percent downside here. So atypically, we do see a little bit of that outperformance in a down market for the Nasdaq, as opposed to some of the leadership to the downside that we've seen as of late. Now, if we take a look at that Nasdaq trade, maybe no surprise when you talk about some of the highlights, right? The QQQ over the course of February, just the calendar month, was down nearly four and a half percent. And it was communication services. It was technology. The two of the worst performing sectors overall. Those types of stocks were the underperformers there. If you take a look at where there were bright spots, it was maybe no surprise. Cybersecurity among the best performing stocks within the Nasdaq 100, the biggest NASCAS talks out there, Palo Alto Networks, Fortinet, Datadog, all among the top performers within that NASDAQ 100 larger cap trade. So again, February was very much about cybersecurity, at least towards the second half when we saw Russia and Ukraine becoming a real issue. As opposed to the other side, where some of the biggest names out there that we've come to really know and understand as part of the leadership of the market to the upside over the last decade, were some of the ones that got hit the hardest. Now, PayPal Holdings is down about 35% during that calendar month. And Meta Platforms, we know very well about the troubles facing the former company, company formerly known as Facebook. And Netflix shares were down about 8% as well. So some of the biggest names out there were the real outliers to the downside. I also want to focus in on the stocks that matter the most, because if you take a look at some of the ones that really, really kind of really led the way in terms of market cap weightings, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet parent company of Google and Amazon, those four stocks you can see there. Amazon, by the way, the only stock within that trillion dollar club within the S&P 500 and Nasdaq 100 that was actually positive among those particular stocks for the month of February. So with Apple down 5%, Microsoft down 4%, Google just about flat, and Amazon actually positive, it really kind of brings you this notion, guys, of whether or not there is certain tech reversal or outperformance that can happen. But, of course, this is all contingent upon the risk aversion trade that we can already see playing out. And with yields dropping, with the Nasdaq falling, and with the Dow going towards session lows, that becomes a very big variable, guys, for a lot of traders and investors out there. Uh, Indeed, Dom. Uh, We're watching that this morning. Uh, Quick programming note, by the way, as we go to break. President's first state of the union tonight on Capitol Hill. Uh, Do not miss CNBC's special coverage beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern, helmed by our own Shepard Smith. And then, of course, the Fed chair on the Hill tomorrow morning. Don't miss that as we are quickly close to revisiting Friday's low of 42.86. We're back in a moment. Sell-off is accelerating here as we get closer back to 4,300 on the S&P. Watch Lucid. Uh, Stock is plunging today as the EV maker cuts its uh, 2022 production outlook by as much as 40 percent. Supply chain constraints, logistics challenges, the main issue there. Uh, Lucid also missed on revenue and a wider-than-expected loss. Yet the CEO does remain confident in the company's ability to capture opportunities ahead, given their, quote, technology leadership and strong demand for our cars. Remember that uh, last week's low on the S&P was... 4114. We're coming back in a moment. One more.
more thing before we go. Some chips to go with this dip we're seeing in the major averages. According to a new report, a VP at Taiwan Semiconductor warning that the chip shortage could last another two to three years as chip names have suffered year to date following a big run up in 2021. The worst performers on the NASDAQ today, Lucid, Zoom, and then a bunch of chip names, including AMD, ASML, Marvell, NVIDIA, Micron, LAM Research. Carl, um, not looking like it did uh, last calendar year for the chip so far. Uh, indeed, guys. In the meantime, a pretty challenged session here. VIX session high, close to 34, oil at 106. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.